Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today my guest is Evan Ryan, who is a Maui farmer, seed saver, educator, and author using holistic agricultural practices combined with a diversified business model. With a background in indigenous agroforestry and permaculture, he started Pono Grown Farm in 2012, both a production farm and education center. In addition to two and a half acres of vegetables, over 400 fruit trees, chickens, and bees, the 13-acre landscape is home to a farm-based preschool and kindergarten, a thriving internship program, a nature connection summer camp, and is a campus for farm apprenticeship programs, University of Hawaii ag classes, and residential courses on earth stewardship. Evan lives on the farm with his wife, Danielle, and seven-year-old son, Bija. How are you doing, Evan? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Michael. Absolutely. So you seem to have quite a lot going on. We definitely do. Keep our hands full. So, but you've been at it about a, now a decade, right? Uh, yeah. On this site, we've been at it about a decade, been farming for about 20 years now. All right. So you, I think you first started your farming journey in Pennsylvania. Uh, what brought you to Maui? Uh, I came to Maui specifically to farm. I was actually living in Colorado at the time that I came here and I had a a job doing outdoor education in the summertime that I knew I was mm. going to keep for a handful of summers and wanted to keep farming. And so I came out here for a winter as a place that I could farm in the wintertime. Okay. So talk a little bit about that transition. So you were over the next couple of years, you still went back to Colorado and then were just farming in the winter in, in Hawaii. Yep. Yeah. And actually shifted over to Costa Rica for some of that time, mm. but yeah, but I was spending about eight, nine months a year uh, farming over the winter time. Very interesting. And talk to me a little bit about Costa Rica. What kind of farming were you doing there? Um, very similar, except in a lot more intensive tropical environment. So a lot of indigenous agroforestry practices. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about that. Share some of those practices, how they work, and some of that wisdom. So my background is mostly in permaculture. The most formative teachers I've worked with had a background in permaculture themselves. And uh, permaculture is pulled from a lot of uh, indigenous traditions throughout the world, but uh, primarily I would say in tropical locations using perennial growing practices. So that's mm. a lot of um, trees working with tree crops and in environments that uh, kind of our traditional European vegetable cultivation that I'm currently doing now, or probably most listeners are doing, um, doesn't work as well in those environments because the carbon cycle is very fast with the year-round mm. growing conditions and the heat and the different funguses and bacteria and the quickness of the carbon cycle. So in those environments, they do a lot less gardens. They typically have very small gardens and a lot of their food is coming from more the forestry side, right? Agroforestry. Correct. Okay. Interesting. Um, and so a lot of, are they doing a lot of, let's say bananas or talk through some of the crops that they're eating? 
Yeah, um, yeah def definitely bananas, a lot of fruit tree crops, a lot of starches um, like taro and cassava, uh, sweet potato, pumpkin, um, things like that that fill the diet. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So now you're in Maui. Talk us through those first couple of years of kind of what did your farm look like? Well, my first few years on Maui, I was actually apprenticing mm -hmm. uh, with, with a permaculturist here who was a homesteader and had kind of mastered permaculture on his five acres. Um, ultimately, every inch of that five acres was designed and planted out, um, providing an abundance of food for the people living on the land and for composting. You know, it wasn't a market farm. It still isn't a market farm. Um, most, of the, most of the excess food was just going towards building soil for the next generation mm -hmm. of crops. And so then what, what year did you start the farm and what it, originally did you have a specific of what the farm was going to be and how has that changed? Yeah. So in those first few years on Maui, what I was, what I was shown is a lifestyle that really resonated mm -hmm. with me of living close to the land of harvesting water and electricity and growing food, you know, for family scale. And it was a lifestyle that really intrigued me and interested me. And so I kind of kept walking down that path of skill building which was skills along the lines of carpentry and electrical and plumbing and basically any, you know, mm -hmm. trade skill that I could gather along the way so that I could homestead is kind of the direction that I was, that I was moving in. And ultimately, you know, because I come from a background of having wanted to be an educator was kind of walking that path. Uh, it laid out this vision for me of a farm and education center uh, combined. And so I kind of just held that vision in my head for about 10 years or so while I was skill building, while I was, you know, learning to, learning to grow better and learning to, you know, create better in a landscape and understand landscape better. And, um, and so by the time we started here in 2012, I'd already had a wealth of experience in trades. Um, I had a wealth of experience as an educator and in land design and consulting and implementation of farm systems, which gave me a really uh, solid background in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, knowing what my vision was and also knowing how to do it. Um, so it helped me avoid a lot of mistakes because I, I got to practice on other people's lands and other people's jobs before um, beginning on my own. Mm -hmm. What would you say some of the biggest mistakes people who are starting down the permaculture road make? Hmm. I'd say probably the biggest one is moving too quickly. Mm. And, um, and, and, and that combined with thinking uh, we know what we're doing. Mm. Um, you know, like the, the two, the two combined, because we have these thoughts and we do know what we're doing on so many levels, but oftentimes the vision's much, we're not, we're not, uh, we haven't had the experience yet until we're really in it on a specific site, um, to really, uh, yeah, to really know what we're doing. And so it really takes the land and it takes the community to guide us along the way. And so if we move too quickly, we kind of miss those lessons and teachings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So slower is better. Slower is better. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the farm now. What is the, uh, what's the main, you do a lot of education, but like, what's the kind of the mix, the breakup of the different um, enterprises? Uh, breakup. Uh, well, they all kind of, they all support the whole. I will mm -hmm. say that like, even in terms of the vegetables that we grow, we have about 30 to 40 vegetables that we grow throughout the year. There is no main crop. Um, we have phases where certain crops are the main crop doing better than other crops, but okay. that can, that can even change week to week. And so kind of everything's in tandem in terms of supporting the whole of the farm itself. But, um, 
but I would say as far as like a breakup, uh, one energy wise in terms of like our physical energy, our financial energy, emotional energy, it's about 50, 50, probably the educational activities and the, the production mm-hmm. side. But I would also say that without the production side, we don't have the educational side. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so really like the grounding force is the food production, the land design practices, um, and the harvesting of the, you know, the natural resources, um, around us, such as rain and solar energy. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your energy because you do a lot of solar as well as water catchment. Um, share a bit about that. Uh, yeah, the farms on, you know, on, uh, photovoltaic. Uh, we are grid tied, which that, what that means is that we don't have a battery backup. We're tied into the grid. So we feed power into the grid all day long. And then at nighttime, they give us power back in exchange. Um, overall, um, we, most years we've, we've produced, we produce more power than the grid is giving us um, as a collective whole. And um, it works really well for us as farmers because it's part of what uh, keeps our costs low. Um, is having that. We, um, we have two different systems, one that we paid for outright that's connected to our home, and then another system that um, was supported in part by a USDA grant, um, which, is, which has you know, been really supportive and helpful. And then um, water-wise, um, really into water catchment. Um, mm. And so what that looks like is we have about 160,000 gallons of water storage on the farm um, in the form of four cistern tanks and a pond. Um, all of this ties into our irrigation water in the, in the winter time, our tanks are overflowing. Um, mm-hmm. We collect, if I can think of the, the total, uh, right now we have about 5,000 square feet of roof space we're co- collecting on. And so what that mm-hmm. means is for every inch of rain that falls from the sky, we get 3,000 gallons of water stored. Mm. And um, in another few years, we'll have another 4,000 square feet of roof um, that's tied into that system. And so that'll be 5,400 gallons of water stored per inch of rain. And on average, we have about 70 inches of rainfall. And so it's this, you know, abundant free resource that comes from the sky. And the alternative is taking groundwater out of an aquifer that in many years is depleting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then with the water, do you have a, a, a pump that then pumps it throughout the farm? Yep. Yeah, we have a pump system and a filter system to move the water through the farm. Mm-hmm. And is that just like a regular, it's not a trash pump. It'd be more of like a, a shallow well pump or something like that. Um, it's a, well, I don't know. I don't, I, it doesn't fit either of those descriptions, but it's a ground fuss, um, above ground pump. They make submersibles as well, but ours is above yep. ground. Okay. Interesting. Um, and then it goes through the system. Now it's a lot of things on drip or are you doing a lot of overhead irrigation? How does that fit into your system? Currently we're on overhead, um, but right now we just, just got all the materials in the past month and we are converting to drip right now. And that is a water conservation method, particularly in the dry months in the summertime, we get about four months where we're really dry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So backup, do you run out of water or is that a possibility? You know, do you at some points tap into that aquifer or you just can subscribe mostly on just the, the catchment? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the summertime, we don't have enough storage to make it through currently, but we are expanding our storage in the hopes that we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's our goal. And with four months dry, like some months, some years, it's literally like for four months, we get zero rain. Um, wow. And so I don't, I don't ever see us getting to a place that we can fully make it through that type of year, yeah. um, but, but we can get pretty close. 
So with no rain coming down, what's your strategy? How much water are you trying to put on per uh, week? Is it like an inch a week or? Yeah. Yeah. An acre inch. Okay. So we're looking at, we're looking at about, um, you know, it's about 15,000 gallons a day. Okay. Gotcha. That makes and, sense. And yeah. fortunately we're in an area that because we get significant rainfall most of the year that none of our tree crops are irrigated. We're just looking at our two and a half acres of vegetables that we're having to irrigate and everything else we let, we let do what it does. We want our trees to go deep and find water. Um, mm -hmm. every now, every now and then we have new trees that we planted in the spring and we're going into a really dry period. We might go in and water them once a month. Mm -hmm. uh, and with good mulching practices, that'll keep them alive for the summer. Mm. Okay. Gotcha. Share a little bit about your, the marketing of, of your farm. How do you get, how do you um, deliver product to your customers? We, uh, we, we are about 80% face to face with our clientele. Okay. And so that will, what that looks like is farmer's market and a CSA off the farm. Um, I say off the farm, meaning that families come to us, um, every Friday they pick up off the farm. They have a range of hours they can pick up and mm -hmm. we have about 30 families in our CSA and with them coming to the farm, they're also welcome to walk the farm in the gardens and it gives them an opportunity to bring their families and just children running around and a really kind of beautiful uh, intergenerational scene that takes place on those Friday pickup days. And, um, and then other than the farmer's market, we do uh, the other 20% is restaurants and uh, wholesaler that mm -hmm. we sell to. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Are there specific crop families you focus on or you pretty much grow everything? We pretty much grow everything that we can grow. You know, first, what, what drove me towards farming is a value system of wanting to live close to the land, of wanting to grow my own food. And so what we've sought to do is to diversify so that we can provide for those of us that live on this land with as much diversity as we can. And so what that means for us here on Maui or the location that we're at on Maui, is most things we can grow pretty successfully. Um, zucchinis are one that is exceptionally challenging. Melons are something that is exceptionally challenging. We don't grow those um, mm. big, big tomatoes, but we are, we're putting in a greenhouse right now. So we'll, we'll be uh, doing some big tomatoes as well coming soon. But, um, but we definitely have our season. So we have a brassica season, which we've just started seeding our brassicas so that by se September, August, September, we'll be harvesting them. Mm. And that'll go through next March or so. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then the summertime comes alive, the cherry tomatoes and the cucumbers and green beans. Um, so yeah, so seasonally it changes a little bit, but, um, but for the most part, you know, we probably always have at least 30 different varieties of vegetables that we're growing. Mm. Now, is it because of the temperatures that you can't grow regular tomatoes, how cool it is? No, it's because of pests. Okay. Yeah, fruit, we have a lot of fruit flies here. Uh, okay, gotcha. And they just um, dive in and destroy the tomatoes. Yeah. Very interesting. So obviously then the tunnel will be screened. Correct. It'll be, okay. well, it'll be, it'll be plastic on top and screened on the sides and end walls. Yes. Gotcha. All right. Cool. Um, so you also have a, an internship and apprenticeship program. Talk to us a little bit about how that works and what's different between the two. Um, we, well, we work with a couple of different farm apprentice programs. And so we take on apprentices through those programs that come to, that are Maui residents. Um, they're taking coursework simultaneously with coming out to the farm and getting hands-on experience. 
Um, as far as an internship, we have a residential internship on the farm where we receive about six or seven individuals at a time. And they come and do some coursework, but it's mostly hands-on field work uh, with us. And so it is one integrated into our label, labor force, but it's also integrated into our educational mission. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, gotcha. And how long are the, the, the particular sessions that they, they can stay for as long or as short as they want, or do you have it specifically set up? We do a three-month minimum. And on yeah. average, we have about people stay about six months. Gotcha. And what's your goal with them? Is that that they leave knowing how to do everything or just very specific parts of the farm? Um, Our goals is actually more related to their one individual growth as human beings in connection with uh, the culture of farming. Um, So this is now like the agrarian culture aspect related to earth stewardship. Um, So what our want is that in every sect of society, you know, as a farmer, what my want is, is that in every sect of society, we have people that understand agriculture. Mm. They understand what it takes to be a small farmer, an earth practice, earth care practitioner, um, so that they can be customers of, they can be advocates for, and be a part of a support system, um, because it's something that's been lost culturally in a big way. And right now, you know, th- through the work that you're doing and a lot of other people are doing, there's a reinvigoration of, of this awareness, but we have a, a generation or two disconnect um, taking place. And so, yeah, our one is to just give people the experience of living in this lifestyle and seeing what that feels like and what the challenges are and what the attributes are and to, to carry it with them in whatever path they take. Um, I'd say probably about, uh, you know, 10 to 25% continue on a farming path. Mm. And the rest just go on with using it as an experience. Yeah, correct. Or end up in, you know, different forms of conservation work or environmental science or education. So it feels like that, that they can carry it into. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the farmer's market you go to, um, would you say what percentage of your sales come through that? It's a pretty small. Um, It's about 60%. Oh, wow. Okay. So sizable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Very cool. And uh, is that year round or? Yes, year round. Okay. So they're there every single week. Wow. Share a little bit about the, the seed growers network that you um, co-founded. Uh, so it's a Hawaii seed growers network. And there's a group of six of us that began that, which was actually born from a larger project called the Hawaii public seed initiative, um, which was a group of us that set out on a mission on uh, recreating a culture around seed saving in Hawaii and uh, particularly recognizing our unique uh, situation of being placed way out here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and also our unique position of importing a lot of seeds that were coming from a lot of different parts of the world in different microclimates and different soils. Um, So with this goal of getting locally adapted seed being uh, produced here in Hawaii. And so it was a goal of educating people to inspire people to start growing seed. And uh, with that was the step of creating the Hawaii Seed Growers Network, which at this point is a local Hawaii-based seed company. Um, It's uh, a little bit of a cooperative model, not organizationally, but in the sense that anyone can grow seed for the network. And they send in seed to our seed bank, which is on the big island. It gets professionally dried down and germination tested and stored. Uh, over there. And then through our online presence, anyone in the world actually can go on and order seed through 
uh, through the network that gets shipped out to them. And then the grower, the person that grew the seed gets 50% of the sales. And so it's a way to incentivize seed saving, seed cultivation, seed breeding uh, here in Hawaii, which has been fairly dormant for the past mm-hmm. couple of decades. Well, I can imagine like a four month dry season could help with drying those crops, but I'm assuming it's just the total overall gene environment has its own host of challenges. Yep, definitely. Yeah, we have unique pests and unique soil conditions that we're working with here. Mm-hmm. Now you also wrote a book um, called Hawaii Home Gardens. Share a bit about that. Yeah, the book's called Hawaii Home Gardens: Growing Vegetables in the Subtropics Using Holistic Methods. Um, I taught for many years and, and still was teaching a lot of workshops to beginner growers here in Hawaii. So this is backyard growers, and in addition to teaching for my farm apprentice programs, and so. What I created was essentially a farmer training manual um, Mm. that was site specific to Hawaii. I'd say probably if I was going to write a book for the mainland, probably 60% of it could be used in that. But then there's Mm -hmm. that unique 40% um, that is really unique to us here in Hawaii. And um, yeah, so it was a way for me to direct people instead of uh, fielding all the questions that I was fielding. I can now direct people to my my book Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. in a way. So yeah, a labor of love, definitely. So I'm looking at a picture here of it's beautiful, you know, got the hillside and and crops growing down the hillside, but in like your irrigation rows, you've got this grass growing. What would that grass be? Grass is vetiver. Okay. And vetiver is the, it's the first plant we planted on the farm about two years before I planted anything else. While I was still in design phase, I planted 1200 vetiver plants which was the framework for our vegetable growing. And it's a combination of reasons it's there. Vetiver is a, um, has a, it's a grass, which makes it a bioaccumulator. All grasses are bioaccumulators, meaning it has a deep root system that's really effective at mining nutrients from the soil. Um, this grass, the, the root system happens to have the tensile strength of steel and it can go down about 10, 15 feet deep. And so what that means is it's exceptional at erosion control. Mm. And as you see in the picture, we're growing on a hillside. It's only maybe about a 10% grade or so, but it is a hillside. When we started here, when we get six inches of rain in an hour, which can happen, Mm -hmm. it can happen periodically in the wintertime. Um, That area of the farm before we started here, every now and then a river would run through there. Mm. And so we prepared that area by planting this vetiver on contour every 27 feet down the hill, which allowed Mm -hmm. us for six 30 inch beds in between it. And um, yeah, so it's erosion control. It's also catching nutrients. We have very porous soils here in Hawaii. We're feeding our beds. We lose the nutrients. It runs downhill. The vetiver roots grab it, bring it back up to the surface. Mm-hmm. We, come, we come in three, four times a year. We cut back the vetiver. We use it to mulch our pathways, uh-huh. which, help, which helps to put nutrients and compost back into our pathways. It's also weed suppression, moisture retention in our pathways. And then once a year, uh, when we are cover cropping our beds, we cover crop all our beds once a year, uh, we come in and we dig out our pathways, which is this composted nutrient rich vetiver. And we dig out our pathways and we bury our cover crop with the soil from the pathways. Hmm. Wow. That's very cool. And, um, uh, so I'm looking here, is that the mini wobblers that you have down the lines of that grass? Those are just impact sprayers, actually. Okay, just impact sprayers, mm-hmm. gotcha. And then it, what is the big leafed crop on the bottom of the picture? That would be uh, taro, or kalo, okay. as the Hawaiians yep. would say. And is that something you harvest once a year? What's the, the lifestyle, uh, life timeline of that? We harvest at about eight, nine months. 
Okay. And uh, we have about an eight month period that we, ha- that we are harvesting. And so we have about four months that we don't have it just that we could have it year round, just the cycles that we do in terms of planting it mm-hmm. and the, and the limited space we have. Um, yeah. We harvested about um, eight months of the year and we usually get about 10 to 12 pound roots off of each wow. one of those plants. Okay. So, and then is that seed or, I mean, do you plant that by the tuber? What's the, what's the, the propagation? Uh, in, in Hawaiian, we would say we plant it by huli, okay. H-U-L-I, which means to turn over. And so what happens when we harvest a root, we pull a, we dig a root out of the ground and mm-hmm. we cut the top off of the root, which leaves like, which leaves a stem and leaf and a tiny little bit, like a quarter inch of root itself. Okay. And we can take that and turn it over and plant it back into the land. Wow. And you plant the same exact spot or you start a new patch someplace else? We rotate. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. This, uh, this, uh, Island farming is something else. Mm-hmm. So what would you say your favorite crop is to grow? Oh, my favorite crop. There's so many of them. It's a, it's a tricky question. Um, it might be tarot actually, okay. um, that we just discussed, which is, um, I think for me, it's, it's really, uh, symbolic thing because it is the it's the primary food source of the polynesian people or the hawaiian Mm. people um and so there's this way of honoring landscape and honoring tradition and honoring culture that happens in uh you know keeping it as as one of the main crops on the farm Mm. um to just honor this the sense of place and um that, that just reminds me of who I am and where I am and who came before me here and, you know, who are, who are the ancestors that I need to offer my gratitude to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And then things like carrots, is that something you just plant year round or is there specific seasons that you try to plant those type of crops? We grow carrots year round. Um, we, we go heavier on them in the fall or excuse me, in the springtime, mm-hmm. uh, when a lot of other crops fade off, like our brassicas fade off and we haven't gotten into our summer crops yet. So it gives us more space for the carrots, but it's, that's, that's probably one of our, um, definitely one of my favorite crops in terms of like things we produce. Like one of the things I'll, I'll say at the farmer's market is like, there's, there's a lot of things we grow that people grow as well as what we do but we have the best carrots at our farmer's market and everybody knows it and comes for them and, and we can't produce enough of them. And so in the spring, when we have more space for them, we'll, we'll produce more of them. Mm -hmm. Hey, thriving farmers. Do you need a quick win on your farm? Have you struggled to find the right soil amendments that maximize your fruit or vegetable production? In December of 2020, I was introduced to AgriGrow and their prebiotic formulas. I was skeptical at first, but this past season, I boosted my strawberry yields by 18% with an AgriGrow product called Ultra. What does an 18% yield increase look like in dollars? My $6 in product investment returned me $868 worth of marketable strawberries on just three rows. This is the kind of ROI that we need as small scale producers. Ultra is an OMRI listed soil prebiotic technology that has been proven to increase yields and develop soils. To find out more or to order, go to smallfarm.solutions. AgriGrow is offering a 10% discount to all Thriving Farmer listeners. Simply use the coupon code THRIVE when you check out. Again, that is T-H-R-I-V-E for 10% off discount on your first order. Let's talk about your team. You have a pretty large team for the farm. Um, How do you go about hiring the right people? 
well, one is we have our intern labor. Mm-hmm. So that, so that's one of our teams and it's a very specific vetting process of application and interview and just looking at overall presentation. And then as far as people we hire, it's kind of very similar, uh, with application and interview and, um, you know, how do we harvest the, how do we hire the right people? It's um, a lot of, it's just intuition, like who, who fits the culture of what we're doing. And, and what we're looking for is people that are, you know, value aligned or mission aligned more than like, are they good workers? And do they have skill is like, do they like in their hearts, like love this work and love why we're doing it? Um, mm-hmm. Because, because if they do, they make excellent team members and the skills can be trained from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. And so then let's talk about that skill training. So you bring someone on, you find they align. Do you have a specific process they go through to train through the farm or is it just them tagging along with someone who's more experienced? Uh, it's, it's both, but all the foundational um, skills that we work with are generally trained in the fir- within the first couple of weeks. Okay. So that's, that's looking at the weeding cycles, our uh, bed preparation, our planting, and, um, and direct seeding. And then when we get, and then the nursery work, and then we get into harvesting and the harvesting is the thing that takes the longest because there's so many different crops to work with that all have Hmm. uh, different nuances. And so that happens over the course of many weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do you train effectiveness or, you know, the ability to see the, the job for like the best way to do it and, you know, make sure they do it that way. So it's efficient. It takes a lot of, observation and interaction uh, to get there. Because even, you know, I say we train a lot of the foundational skills in the first week. Uh, What's the retention of an individual? Um, For everybody, that's a little bit different. But I find that even, you know, even the best people with the most experience uh, can only retain so much in a short period of time. And Mm. so it takes uh, a continuous reinforcement of the information. And it's kind of even with our internship, why we do a three-month minimum is because it takes a good two to three months for them to get the foundational skills. And from there, they can really start the more intuitive decision-making and intuitive learning that happens. Um, but within that first two to three months with any new worker on the farm, we are continually observing and interacting. And so that what that means is we'll dial out, they'll go do a job, we'll see how they're doing it, we'll offer feedback to it um, till, we get, till we get aligned. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing that we've struggled with sometimes is people like saying, well, you're just, you know, you're giving lots of feedback. You know, I I don't know why you have to keep saying how to do this. What kind of conversation do you have? So they realize that about how you, it needs to be done a certain way to be most effective. It's a tricky one. Um, You know, it ties into like the hardest thing uh, that I've experienced being a farmer, which has been growing my farm to beyond Mm. what, what I can personally take care of. Uh, because we're getting into so many like human um, interactions and every person is different in how, in how they receive that feedback. And some people can be really sensitive to it. And um, yeah. And so, you know, one is like really being aware of my own internal reactions is a big one. You know, if I'm coming from a place of frustration, I'm usually not very effective at sharing information with people. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I'm learning to, to not do, meaning to not come from a place of frustration. So that means noticing, am I feeling frustrated? Because if so, now is not the right time for me to offer feedback. And so one thing I'm learning is that sometimes it might not be in the moment that I'm doing it, but it might be like a little bit later or the next day. Um, 
that, that I can address something if I am having a reaction. And if I'm not, I tend to just be really direct, um, which is, which is my way of being and, um, you know, allow someone, whatever feelings they want to have in relationship to my directness. Um, but to just like, keep, keep focused on the information of what, of what's happening, you know, and the details of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Do you have like set roles on the farm? So you're bringing on specific people for specific roles or is it more people are more of a general, just do what needs done? Um, I have, I have a guarded manager who's, who's my main, you know, like number one worker um, with me. And so she, she has very specific roles that she manages in terms of our, our gardens, which is the crop rotations and plantings and is hands-on with the crew on three of the main work days that happen. Um, and then from there, it is about, it is more about like doing what needs to be done in terms of the other workers that I have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And do you tend to send people out like one or two people out to do something or you tend to put the entire crew on a task to get it all done much quicker? It depends on the task. Things like harvesting green beans, it's all hands mm -hmm. are heading out and harvesting green beans. Cause otherwise someone could spend the whole day doing it and we try and keep morale high. Yes. Um, but, but otherwise, yeah, we're a lot in the divide and, you know, individually out there, we, we've kind of set it up so that people can self-manage themselves in a lot of ways. Whereas on our, you know, our bed prep, we start bed prep Tuesday afternoon, we finish it Wednesday morning. And that is people are just going through the rows and they're identifying the beds that we harvested on the previous Friday or the previous week and they're prepping them and they know what to do. They have all the materials with them. They're getting the bed set. They're just each working on their own in their own bed. And then by the time they get to, you know, Wednesday, mid Wednesday morning, then we have a planting list all set up for them, which identifies which beds are ready to plant, what the crop, what crops going there. And so they come, they look at the list, they sign off on it. They go out, they grab plants from the nursery, they go plant it, they finish it off, they cross it off. They go back to the list. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what is your bed prep process? Um, our bed prep process, so we're no-till. Uh, and what that means for us is after, you know, after a harvest, let's say, you know, yesterday we harvested, you know, hundred feet of fennel. Um, then we have a hundred foot bed to prep. And so we'll come in, we'll weed it, uh, which is usually using a hula hoe because it can be pretty aggressive weeding. Um, if there's any plants left in it, they want to get cut out, we'll cut them out. We tend to leave the roots from the previous crop in the ground. Um, mm -hmm. So for, for fennel, we cut out the bulbs, but we leave the roots in to decompose, um, be food for beneficial bacteria for the next generation. And yeah. so we'll come in, we'll weed it, uh, we'll lay out compost. Um, so this is farm-made compost utilizing fish waste. And uh, so we'll put down you know, about five, uh, five gallons of compost for every 15 to 20 feet of bed space. And then we'll rake the bed, uh, get it the right width, get it the right shape uh, in terms of being level. Uh, and then it's ready to plant. Okay. And the, the raking that's done with, let's say like a, a regular 30 inch, uh, uh, bed prep rake. Correct. And I missed the most important step, um, which is to fork it. Actually, we come in with a garden fork and okay. we just do All a right. forking. So it's just like 12 inch tines. Mm -hmm. um, do a simple forking our soil at this point, especially because it's been well worked over the years uh, with good compost and cover cropping practices. It's nice and loose. So the forks go in like butter. Um, I kind of call this the, you know, the work that we're doing feels more like gardening than what I would call farming uh, because it's very mm -hmm. gentle work and yeah, uh, the bed prep happens pretty quick, even though it's all done by hand. 
Gotcha. So then, and then you're doing your seeding and then it's irrigation and then the, the, uh, the cycle repeats. Yep. Talk a little bit about your pests because you've talked about some very specific pests that you have. What is your pest management protocol? Um, our number one protocol is to create the right environment and conditions and grow the crops that want to be on our land. Um, so what that means is a crop like zucchini, really hard to grow. We just don't grow it. Mm. Um, or things like uh, our cherry tomatoes. Uh, in the wintertime, when we get excessive rain, we don't grow them because they're going to get late blight on them. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, every summertime, we have a pest called bagrata bug, which came in from California about four years ago and okay. feeds, on, feeds primarily on brassicas. And so we cycle all our brassicas out of the field for about three, four months of the year. Um, otherwise, we have pests like, uh, you know, the cabbage moth um, that comes in and we'll spray BT for about four weeks uh, in the spring and four weeks in the fall in the seasons that it really comes on. But otherwise, you know, I'm not personally, I'm not that into uh, prescriptive pest management. Mm. Um, I'd rather not have the crop than fight a pest to get the mm-hmm. crop. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of what you're doing too, is it sounds like your soil has started to optimize too. So they're getting the nutrients they need and able to resist as well. Yeah, exactly. And setting up that right kind of canvas for it, which is like proper windbreaks, proper sun and orientation, proper watering at the right times. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all these things that are integrative pest management that are really effective. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about your education because you do the internship, but you also teach some classes. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. And, And do you use that to pull in customers for your vegetables? Are they pretty separate things? Uh, inevitably everything is integrated and, mm-hmm. you know, I, in speaking with you, I was just thinking about marketing as a whole, you know, like yeah. what, what marketing we do, we do. And, and, you know, the reality is, is one is there's such a need for local food mm. that we haven't had to do much marketing. There's such a need for education around agriculture that we haven't had to do much marketing or, you know, our farm-based preschool and kindergarten, there's such a need for it. We, we don't even have it on the website um, and it's full or our, we have a, you know, our nature connection camp in the summertime, same thing, zero advertising for it. And just by word of mouth, these things get out. And um, so that's one, you know, concept in there, which is like produce a good product Mm -hmm. and it goes out there. But then there's also this integration of like, yes, like families in the school are getting our CSA and buying from us at the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so there's this integration of like all the people that come to the farm end up as customers, or I teach a garden workshop and I talk about vetiver, the the grass that's growing in our, uh, in between our garden beds. Mm -hmm. And, and then I get, you know, and, and it's a plant that we sell off the farm. Also, we dig it up and divide it and sell it. And it's a, it's a commercial crop for us. And so Mm -hmm. I teach a workshop and then suddenly five people from the workshop are buying a few hundred plants. Um, from there. And so there's this tremendous integration that happens um, for everyone to be our customers. And then in addition to that marketing wise, I look to my past, which has been doing classes and uh, consulting and design work and farm and garden uh, installations, and then also serving on ag oriented boards Mm -hmm. um, and, and really just showing up in service to a lot of different ag centered organizations, mission aligned organizations. And so people are aware of who I am and the work that we're doing here on the farm. And so naturally they want to support it. 
you know, they're, they're supporting a culture more than just buying a bunch of carrots. Mm. Um, and that feels really good to them. In addition to buying a bunch of carrots, that's really good at a good price. So, um, so yeah, so there's always going to be integration on those levels. And I think those years that I was, you know, more uh, engaged with the broader community, those are mm. the people that are consistently showing up for us for our workshops and to purchase food from the farm. Yeah, absolutely. And it looks like vetiver is also a herb that you can, there's an oil people take. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wouldn't call it an herb. I, I don't know that people ingest it, but it is uh, commonly used in oils. Okay. Yeah. All right. Gotcha. Very cool. Is that something that is, uh, it's, uh, I'm assuming it's only tropical. Yes, correct. Gotcha. Very cool. Um, so yeah, back to the marketing there. So like, do you maintain like a Facebook page and, uh, and that, or is it just like now that you've built up the kind of the marketing flywheel, you just grow your food and show up at the farmer's market and people buy it? Uh, yes. And so, yes, that's what we do. And I do have an Instagram page Okay. Um, because I'm, I'm a bit of a Luddite and want to spend very little time on computers, which is one of the reasons I love being a farmer. Gotcha. Um, I, I don't post on it that much, but I do post here and there, um, particularly like in times when maybe for our CSA, we have some families going away, I might do a post for our CSA. And so mm-hmm. it's been, hel- it's been helpful for that. Otherwise, um, there is an element of like, man, I wish I was willing to engage more in it because it's, mm-hmm. the, the, it's such a great educational tool yes. um, that, that I'm not utilizing so much. Mm-hmm. Now, I noticed you're using some shade cloth. Is that for younger lettuces or what's, how do you use that on the farm? We use shade cloth over anything that we direct seed. Okay. And in the, in the summertime, we use it over our lettuce and beet and cilantro seedlings that go in ground. And so these are sensitive crops that can be sensitive to the you know, subtropical sun that we have and the drier conditions that can happen in the summertime. And so Mm -hmm. we use that one to keep pests off because we can get pheasants coming through our row and they will munch every bean sprout that pops up. Oh gosh. Yeah. When they, when they pop up. So keep the birds off of, off of plants. Um, We find it's also effective for snails and slugs because the prepped bed they're not living in. And so then they have to crawl in, but then they can't easily get in because of the shade cloth. Okay. And then, and then the shade cloth is also shading the ground, which uh, helps retain the moisture in the bed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. We've struggled last year. We didn't struggle, but this year we've had some intense heat and we're having to move the shade cloth even here in Ohio, which kind of, I I didn't think we're going to have to do it, but Mm -hmm. we're about to invest in a bunch of that because of just the challenges we're facing. We also got three inches of rain in 90 minutes. So that was wow. the first, first time yeah. we'd had that much. And when you talk about the amount you get, I just can't imagine how, how that yeah. interacts and your soil. That's more of a little bit of a heavier soil, right? It's, it's not actually, it's a okay. clay based, it's a clay based soil, but it's loamy at the same time. Okay. Um, and so when it's really saturated, yes, it's very clay. Um, most of the time it's not overly saturated. Um, especially we have these, because we're on the hillside, we have raised beds. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so we have like a peak in a valley and a peak in a valley and a peak in a valley the whole way down, which allows us to get the beds nice and level. Um, but it also allows it so that when we do get excessive rain in the winter time, the pathways get really wet, but the, um, the beds themselves, uh, can, can dry out pretty quickly, especially with our wind that we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What other things make it challenging the farming where you are? Um, you know, the, the unique pests, which, which we've mentioned already, you know, we have, we have a, 
a very out of balance ecosystem, which is uh, you know a result of colonization ultimately, which mm-hmm. is the, the the passage of a native ecosystem into one where most of the natives have been you know killed off and sequestered into the hills and can't survive anymore in yeah. most parts of the island. Um, and then the bringing in of a tremendous number of species of plants and animals and insects and even bacteria and funguses um, that have been brought in, but they've been brought in without any like real form of balance naturally mm-hmm. in the ecosystem to, to support to support keeping them in balance. And so things getting out of balance is, is really the challenge. And, um, and with that in mind, the year-round growing conditions we have means that the pest cycles don't necessarily die off. They can just keep going. So it's things like root knot nematodes, which is a primary pest here in the tropics. Yeah. Um, we, we plant a sun hemp cover crop on our beds once a year. And that's what, that's how we manage the root knot nematodes. But if we didn't do that, mm-hmm. we couldn't, we couldn't grow a lot of the crops we're growing. Um, but in the mainland climate or in a temperate climate, winter comes and the freeze comes and those populations die back tremendously. Um, so for us, we have to manage things in other ways, um, which, you know, such as when we get the bagrata bug in the summertime to give our brassicas a break from the field so that we don't mm-hmm. just keep, keep cultivating this pest as it may be. There's also, um, you know, this unique challenge of growing year round, um, which is a real benefit when we look at it from a financial perspective, um, because, you know, we go to market 52 weeks a year, um, it doesn't yeah. stop, but it is also this big treadmill of keeping up with the soil, um, you know, the, the nutrients in the soil and the organic matter in the soil, as well as, um, you know, kind of continuing to push ourselves to show up. You know, I look at all these mainland growers that like right now they're in the hardest summer and like, they're so stretched and, um, yeah. in, in keeping up with like everything that, they've set in motion. And for us, it's like this continuous motion going on. And so it's a big education on how to, how to, how do we find balance in all of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's when we went to year round growing and obviously the winter was different because there was a lot less, but you still had that you're going to work every week out of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously the summer was a lot harder because of all the summer crop growing, but um, having that break, especially because farmers typically work so hard, I think is so important. Um, mm-hmm. and obviously when you're in, in one aspect paradise, you have that growing season, which allows you to keep going. So how do you do that balance? Do you try to take specific vacations or how do you, uh, try to, you know, recharge? I'd say I'm just now starting to think about that concept. Um, so I haven't, I haven't figured it out by any means. Um, you know, I, I give a lot of myself continuously. I think, um, you know, you're, you're a father as well. Um, so adding, you know, I have a seven-year-old now, so Mm -hmm. adding the first seven years of a child's life, uh, to the mix, um, ends up being even a lot, lot, makes everything a lot more heightened or extreme in terms of, you know, personal time and space, because my, my life is like, it's either work or family, one or the other. And so there's very little time. I have by myself. And, um, you know, I've even noticed that a lot of the work that I, I, the things that I love about being a farmer is being a laborer and getting Mm -hmm. to just be out in the field working. And at this point with how many things we have in motion, there's very few times that I'm actively just like by myself doing something, you know, most Mm -hmm. of the time I'm managing someone or answering questions or doing something that requires a bit more technicality that I need to like, think about it. I can't just like, be listening to the birds and mm-hmm. focusing on a task um, anymore. 
And, and so I have carved out that, you know, Mondays for myself is a day that I get to mostly do that. Whereas like, I'm mostly working by myself on Mondays to like, just have that space on the farm, be more in the observation mode, be a little bit slower in how I'm moving. Um, and yeah, and beyond that is like still a lot of time in nature with family, you know, fortunately my son loves nature activity. And so, you know, we get out one day a week and we surf and spend the day on the ocean and, um, uh, but as I said, you know, it's something that I'm really looking at in my own life of like, how do I, you know, how do I keep, how do I keep doing this and how do I shift the pace of what I'm doing? And, and I'd say also right now, you know, being 10 years in, we're also at a place that, um, I'm, I, we're starting to have more financial support that allows me to bring in more people, um, to take on roles and responsibilities, um, which, is a lot, which is opening up space for me to do other roles and responsibilities, but it's also opening up some space for me to uh, maybe move a little bit slower or take a little bit more time for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So because you now have the team starting to do some more of the support activities, you start to be able to free up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's always the thing. And I guess it really depends on what the farmer really wants from the farm, because there's so many different aspects of what you can build the farm to be. And some people just literally want to grow vegetables, whereas some people want to build an empire. And Mm -hmm. I'm not saying there's either right or wrong. I think there's obviously all sorts of ways to farm. Yep, definitely. And outcomes to expect from it. Yes. Unfortunately, the one who built an empire, um, <laughs> it was a catastrophic collapse. Yeah. So <laughs> um, what would you say to a new farmer? What would I say to a new farmer? You know, I guess it depends on what phase of new farming that they're at. But, um, you know, I get a lot of um, inquiries from people who are, who are just starting out. And I, I really encourage people to move slow mm-hmm. and to invest heavily in education in the early years. And I know for a lot of uh, beginner farmers, they already have the feeling of overwhelm um, taking place. And a lot of them are really in the overwhelm and others are just starting into the overwhelm and they actually don't really know what overwhelm is yet, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're gonna know a handful of years down the road. And so before we get to that point where there's really like no time in our lives to, or, or no financial energy available in our lives to like really utilize the resources we have um, mm-hmm. to get an education so that we can design our farms from, in a really sensible way um, and design our lives in, in that same way, in a very sensible way so that we can get the outcomes that we're looking for. And um, that move slow aspect is what will support that because I know like for myself, I have a tendency to move, you know, like I, I've been designing farms and implementing them for years before I started here. And I'm, you know, when I started, I was really eager to eager to get going and, you know, like get our two and a half acres of vegetables in production as quickly as possible. And um, we have a plant called nutgrass, nutsedge. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I know it's on the mainland too. It's, um, oh yeah, the, it's the, nasty. UN, the UN considers it the least desirable plant for vegetable cultivation, weed for vegetable cultivation in the world. Okay. And our entire hillside was covered in nutsedge. Wow. And, and so we've used a 12 foot wide strip of weed mat um, mm-hmm. to suppress it for six months before coming in and starting grower space, you know, starting to, to, to do our first tilling and then set up our permanent beds. And, um, and what that did is it slowed me down because I could only open up one field at a time. Mm-hmm. And so it was like every six months I implemented our fields and it was mm-hmm. only last year that we got to the last one. Wow. Um, 
And it was, I, I realized what a blessing this plant has been for me in my life to slow me down because it allowed me to very move, move very slowly and methodically in one, the learning curve of like learning to grow at the scale or learning what crops work well on this site or what systems work well on this site. And also to learn our markets, you know, like who our customers are and how we're going to get things out and, and to be able to do things in a very scalable way that allowed us to produce quality instead of quantity um, and instead of quantity as at a sacrifice to quality. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so just that, that moving slow is going to be really supportive to recognize that we're in it for the long haul. Um, ideally we're setting up multi-generational systems and not just mm-hmm. something for, for me, myself and I right now, or for my, you know, whatever, 10 to 30 years of farming career that I'm going to do. Um, but you know, how do we create something that can be used by the next generation? And so to also invest in quality in that, because I know I didn't, I didn't inherit grandpa's farm and, mm-hmm. um, you know, what a different world it would be if all these young farmers right now were, were inheriting really good quality infrastructure. Instead of having to start from the ground up. Yeah. And sink hundreds of thousands of dollars into their farm. Um, I think that's really important. And that's really interesting how that grass, you know, and one aspect, I guess you could say saved your farm. I mean, obviously you weren't at a place where you're losing it, but in one aspect, Mm -hmm. it really kept you in that narrow lane as you very slowly work through it. Um, Yeah, we have a little bit of nutsedge. Thankfully it's disappearing rapidly, but we also have a fair amount of, um, bindweed and, uh, my, uh, and, uh, vining and milkweed. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one. I haven't. Um, yeah. It's, it's basically a milkweed, but it starts as a vine and, uh, it comes from under the ground and it's very hard to get rid of. So, mm. yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and sharing everything that you have and, and kind of how you're farming over there in Hawaii. Um, anything that we missed that you want to want to share about? Um, you know, only that, you know, th- this message that I have to people starting up in farming is just to remember the, um, you know, maybe a sense of responsibility that we have as earth stewards um, towards caring for the land and caring for our community um, while matching that with doing what we love to do. And so, you know, for me, that's always the, the measure that I'm looking at is like, am I enjoying what I'm doing? Like, do I still love what I'm doing? Because I want to like own my experience in life. And is, is, you know, are my decisions really aligned with taking the right care of the land that I'm on? Um, and are they aligned with taking, you know, the right care with the greater community? Mm-hmm. So then again, do you like try to reset every certain amount of time and say, Hey, do I still love what I do? What's kind of the process you have to make sure you align there? Uh, yeah, regular, regular check-ins. I mean, for me, as I actually have a place that I go on the land that I, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, I, that since I've been des- was designing the farm that I've gone and I've just kind of put intentions in and, you know, reflected on, and from it, I can see, you know, most of the farm. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, just a, a place of reflection uh, to go to and just really, really look at it. Um, you know, the, the bigger picture to, you know, every now and then pull back and look at the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Evan, for your time today. Appreciate it. And uh, can't wait to check back in a couple of years and see, you know, how things have changed. Right on. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Thanks for the work that you do. You do. It's invaluable oh, to, share, thank you. To, to share all this knowledge and wisdom in the way that you do. Well, thank you. This episode is sponsored by Rimmel Greenhouse Systems, makers of quality greenhouse structures. Whether you're just getting started or buying your 10th tunnel, Rimmel has a structure to fit your needs. 
I've purchased and grown in Rimmel houses and would recommend them to everyone. So there you have it. Another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.